Welcome to Manga Mavericks at Movies, the show where we don't talk smack about movies, we celebrate them. Is that our catchphrase? I think I used that last week, so I guess that's our catchphrase now. And today we're talking about two films from 2017 that have Blade in their title. Blade of the Immortal and Blade Runner 2049. Is the fact that the word Blade is in their title the only connection between them? Well, how about the fact that they are both films done by renowned directors making their mark on a prestige property. I think that's a wordy connection worth exploring. I think that's a good connection to form a pairing between these two films. And that's why I've paired these reviews together. So enjoy our discussion of Blade of the Immortal and Blade Runner 2049. at movies the show where we talk smack about movies or more often than not we praise movies that we saw especially this one because this one was amazing Yes, everyone has hyped it up as not only one of the best sci-fi films from the last few years, but one of the best films to come out of 2017. A film that blew everyone away. No one expected this to be as good as it was. Or nor as excellent as it is. Blade Runner 2049, a sequel to a movie 30 years old. No one had any expectations that this would be good, that this would live up to the legacy of the original. But to the surprise of everyone, it not only lives up to that legacy, I dare say, and most people have said, it surpasses it. Surpasses it? Many people considered Blade Runner 2049 to be superior to the original Blade Runner. Huh. I mean, I, I can definitely see that. Like, I think a lot of considerers like, yeah, Ridley Scott's not involved with this. It's, well, he was involved on some level. He, he's not, like, directing it. He was not the director. The director yeah. was Dennis Villeneuve. And just by the director alone, we should have expected to be... Excellent. We should have trusted this to be a good film because he was the director of Arrival, last year's stunning sci-fi alien story that blew us away with how thoughtful it was. I did not watch Arrival. And that is why you are uncultured as a moviegoer. You watched Arrival? I did watch Arrival. Oh, okay. When when did Arrival come out? 2016. Like what month? 2016, November. Okay, how did I not see Arrival, then? I don't know. know. That's on you. It's my fault. I'll go to the film club jail with the rest of the Academy Award judges. Well, you and I were both in film club jail because 
Until very recently, we hadn't even seen the original Blade Runner. Now, granted, that is a movie 35 years old. Yeah. But for such a monumental sci-fi masterpiece, it is criminal that we did not see it for 20 years of our life. Yeah, that's for sure. So, basically, we bought it off Amazon Video, the final cut, because that's the best version. And, yeah, we watched it, and it was amazing. Yes. While watching it, we were struck, struck by how influential this film was, to the point that we could recognize its iconography just from watching all of the derivative works we had seen of it, yeah. including the likes of several anime, most notably Ghost in the Shell. It is astonishing, <laughs> watching Blade Runner, how much the world of Ghost in the Shell, Mamoru Oshii's 1995 film, borrows from it. Yeah, all like the city shots that you remember from the... Original Ghost in the Shell film are so reminiscent of Blade Runner. Like, just down to a T. Even, like, the giant hologram promotions and all that stuff. It's just, like, you can really see that Oshi loved that film. And even beyond that, there's stuff like just Rachel's character, which... Uh, Dorothy from Big O is basically Rachel from Blade Runner. Yes, we made that comment. We were yeah. like, wow, this is our Dorothy Wainwright. This is the inspiration for that character. Yeah, beyond that, like, just the special effects in that film, and just visually, that film looks ahead of its time. Every future in a sci-fi movie looks like Braid Runner's future. That's how influential it is. Yeah. Every future now looks like that super ethno japanese feeling city. It's, it's All so... blue-grayish tints. I, I still find that part a bit weird, that it's just like... It's a bunch of white people, but there's all these, like, Japanese, like... The thing that was weirdest to me about the original Blade Runner is that, ostensibly, everyone in that city, most of the citizens look Japanese, or, at the very least, of Asian descent, but all the main characters were white. And I was like, hmm, this is very suspect, and I'm not pleased with this. Yeah. In this movie... The city is more diverse. Honestly, there weren't, there wasn't that much diversity. It was still mostly white actors, but at the very least. There wasn't a bunch of Asians and then one white guy right there who's supposed to just be like a normal guy in the city. What's weird though, if you notice in one of the scenes, like our main character K is using like a machine and the machine speaks to him in Japanese. Yes. And the text is all Japanese. I'm just like, okay. Um, I guess for many sci-fi writers and visionaries, the future is heavily inspired by Japan. The Japanese are going to take us all over. We're going to become slaves to the animus and the holographic waifus. I mean, holographic waifus were invented in the future of Blade Runner 2049. The main character's gay's girlfriend (laughs) is a holographic... AI named Joy. It just goes She's to show you. She's a mass-produced model, and she has her own autonomy. She has her own free will, as the movie explores. Yeah. But she is ostensibly a manufactured artificial intelligence. But uh, this is the main message of the film, though, kids. 2D women are better than 3D women. That's not really the message of the film. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Certainly, yeah. though, the film argues that an artificial life is as valuable as a 
quote-unquote natural life. Yeah, it definitely drives that message home, and even with, like, I'm I'm surprised they handle, like, the whole, like, holographic AI relationship with, like, I forget the hologram's name. Like, Her name is Joy. Yeah, Joy and Kay's relationship is actually handled really well, which kind of surprised me. And even beyond that, like you said, yeah, it, it, the big message is, is that, yeah, life, regardless of artificial or, like, organic, is important. Yes. In that respect, the team of this movie is not really that much of a expansion of what the original was saying. Thematically, their message is pretty similar, that... Life is life, even if it is man-made, artificial. What is the difference between a robot or a replicant than a human baby? Not much, because they were both created by man. Yeah. They both have the capacity for free will and deserve to be treated with the same amount of humanity. As natural born beings. And I say natural born in quotation. I guess one thing that really comes to me when I think about this is that the original film I feel is very much about what does it mean to be human? What What is really a human? While this film, I feel, it does take that message, but at the same time it channels it into a more character-driven narrative through K himself. I think this movie is a much stronger exploration of that team you're just saying. In fact, I don't think the original movie went that far with it. Yeah, yes, that's, that's what I'm saying. The villain of the original movie was an artificial intelligence, a replicant, and his final words about his memories and musing on the ephemerality of his life you know, that struck a chord. Yeah. That was very human, memorable. And of course, Rachel's character arc in the original film also characterized her as a as a life as valuable as any other humans. Mm. You know? I, I, guess, I guess I should rephrase this. Uh, what, I, what I'm saying is that in the original film, I feel like it's trying to like have the overarching theme of what, what does it mean to be human? While in Blade Runner 2049, it's taking that theme and then channeling it through K and then having this character focused interpretation of that. Like, I, I definitely agree with you that the theme is stronger in this film, in the sequel. But that's because they're channeling it through K. They're focusing a lot more on K himself as a character. I definitely think Kay is a much stronger character. It's definitely easier to empathize with him than Deckard, who was a loner, and honestly, his entire characterization was very much that machismo action hero character archetype and from the even 80s. even then with Decker though, like Decker, like they did they did develop him in the original film, but it's more through a lot of more sparse kind of scenes, like his dreams and just various hallucinations he sees and here though with K in this film it's a lot more I guess heavy they can you you really see K react to the situations and and like how he's like 
changing throughout the film. Like, all his reactions to his false memories and just false, like, beliefs all crashing down. Like, you can really empathize with him as a character, which I feel with Decker, I never really felt sorry for Decker, really felt emotionally attached to Decker in the original film. Yes. Yeah. Kay is more emotionally vulnerable, so when he has huge revelations shake him to his core, when he, who puts up a brave face and, like, I'm not being affected by this front for most of the movie until the moment where he goes to visit the memory engineer, Anna, and she tells him the memories you have are real, and he loses it, he says, God damn it, you know... That is so effective because of his characterization and because we have gotten into his mind and we have something human to attach to him. But Whit Deckard in the original film, what weakens his character is that he is characterized so much like this 80s action hero archetype. And that appeals to a certain uh, fantasy of masculinity and... A heroic ideal, I suppose, but in terms of like an actually relatable character, I think that Kay is far more yeah. easy to empathize with than Deckard. Like De- Decker never really had a moment in the original film where you really feel sorry for him. You feel sorry for Rachel a little bit. I mean you never like, have to feel sorry for Deckard. He's never in a he's, he's never, never in a position where he's vulnerable, or he's, like, in a position where he has a lot to lose. Yeah, Kay has his entire life and his loved ones to lose, and Deckard in the original film, he didn't really have a whole lot to lose but his own life. It was way easier to empathize and become attached to the replicants he's hunting than him himself. Yeah. I think one thing that also weakened the efficacy of Deckard's character arc is actually the whole toying with the idea that is Deckard a replicant or is he human? Now, that is a huge part of the original film's appeal, that mystery. Yeah. But at the same time, it also takes time away from actually emotionally engaging with Deckard. Like, his the emotional aspect of his arc is him questioning whether or not he is human, but... Why do we care yeah. how his, about his understanding? Which is of something that this film, the sequel, does a lot better. Like, I feel like right away they kind of establish who Kay is as a character, and when you start going through all these like reveals of yes, he's a replicant, and yes, his memories may be fake, you start reacting to that a lot more. Uh, I guess emotionally than with Decker, where Decker we don't know that much about him. We don't really have any reason to be emotionally attached to him in the first place. The scene that solidifies this is right at the beginning of the film. And that's where the movie starts off strong. When Kay goes home and we see his interactions with Joy and see how he longs for human connection, for a family, for love, when we see that moment, we immediately connect with his aspiration. He wants to be human. And this revelation that maybe he has been human all along, that hits so much harder than with Deckard, who, when we're introduced to him, he is aloof. He does not care about anyone. Like, only in the middle of the movie does he start to question his memories 
but it feels very disconnected from, like, his situation, because his character arc is not about really finding love, even though he does fall in love with Rachel and stuff. Mm. It's just not as emotionally powerful. It's not as easy to sympathize with Deckard, just in terms of his personality. And it's really easy to sympathize with Kay also because we are shown that he is being a victim of prejudice. Because, like, when he walks right into the station, someone calls him a skinhead, a skinner. A derogatory term for replicant. He is treated as subhuman, subject to psychology tests to make sure he is operational. And if he fails those tests, like, they'll kill him. He is a victim victim of a prejudice system. So that makes him a lot more easy to, like... I mean, it makes him very easy to empathize with or, like want to see succeed because Deckard on the other hand he's you know treated like a human he really doesn't have much at stake right mm-hmm. yeah I, I definitely agree with that like I'd say yeah like, like we've kind of said like yeah Decker just doesn't have much didn't have much to lose well Kay like you can see the prejudice, you can see all the things that he's struggling with, and that's why you're able to empathize with him. And I guess we should go beyond just comparing Decker and Kay here. Um, uh, Again, the core team of the story is the same. Yeah. It just takes a different approach to exploring what is... How do we define what humanity is? Can a robot or replicant artificial human have the same value as a quote-unquote natural-born human? Do they have souls? Do they have humanity? Are they really the same as us? And the movie clearly makes a statement for yes, these are humans. Even if they have been created a different way, they feel emotion they love and it is love as powerful as any human emotion like none of the quote so-called humans in this film are all that human yeah i mean well what's the name of the boss guys again like williams or whatever yes well, the Wallace Corporation. Yeah, Wallace. Wallace okay, is yeah. the most inhuman character. He, not only because he has these implants in him, like he's a rare. He might be like flesh and blood, but he has like he has like implants. Eye implants. He, yeah, eye implants. He looks he alien, human. and his yeah. behavior, his philosophy is so alien to me. There is no empathy or humanity in his soul. Like, when you're first introduced to him, he just brutally kills one of his own, like, uh... He treats the replicants as disposable instruments. 
He can always create more. If they are useless to him, he will get rid of them. It is this instrumentality of human life that is so horrifying and also sets him up as the most inhuman character of them all. Mm. Because his whole motivation is that he wants to have replicants that can breed so that he can create more of them. Literally... He wants to make a slave workforce that will self-propagate. Basically, just have them reproduce faster than he can produce them so that he can have like an infinite supply. Yes, and when he looks at his new experiment to see whether she has a womb or not, and mm. decides that, oh, well, she's barren. Time yeah. to go stabbing. Kills her. Later on, when he has a clone of Rachel meet with Deckard, and Deckard says, the eyes are the wrong color. Rachel's eyes are green. He's like, well, this is useless to me now. Killer. Those were alive. Like that experiment that we see being born. She was afraid. She... She was just born into this world and she has no idea what's going on. It's heartbreaking. You're watching basically this newborn life trying to make sense of what they are, who they are, and being they're, they're treated as an object. Yeah, they're basically being treated as just various goods or like, I'd say worse than livestock. They're being treated less than livestock. They're being treated as objects. Yeah. They're being treated as instruments. A disposable labor force. They aren't treated as human beings. At all. It is incredibly disturbing. And... Even characters who... Supposedly are less racist against the replicants like K's superior officer Lieutenant Joshi even a character like that displays very subtle but clear prejudice against replicants I, I'd say that she her I lie like... that K has been getting on just fine without a soul insinuates that she doesn't believe Kay had a soul. Yeah. I, I'd say that she's not any different than, from the other humans. Cause yeah. They never show any signs of that. Like, you know, you're, oh, yeah, she's not telling, like, Kay, she's not telling the corporation where uh, Kay goes off to, but she doesn't know. And she has no, like, way of knowing that he's the, like, he's the, like, naturally born replicant. So, she's basically just as racist as everyone else. The film never presents anything to tell us otherwise. Yeah. None of the humans in this movie are presented very uh, sympathetically. O only the artificial intelligence I, I guess are. Decker, but, like... They don't they, know... They, they, yeah, they still, they still keep it vague they in this film. They still keep it vague. Because, like, one, one thing that they do explain at the beginning of this film is that... Uh, you, you remember in the first film, the replicants could only live for a certain period of time. Three years. Three years. But they reveal in this film that a certain subsection of replicants 
have been able to survive past that point and essentially have lifespans equivalent to human beings. Yes. So they, they like, when, like, Decker gets captured in this film, they kind of still keep it vague whether he's human or not because, like, the leader of the... Wallace. Wallace, yeah, I keep forgetting his name. Um, Wallace is talking about, oh, maybe you were programmed for you and Rachel to become the father and mother of a new breed of replicants. Or maybe not. So he, he's basically just cock-teasing it. But I'm, it's kind of a good thing they do keep it ambiguous. Because that kind of was a big thing in the original film. And if you just say straight out, okay, uh, Decker's human, Decker's a replicant, it kind of just breaks the overall feel. It would rob the mystique of the original film if the question yeah. was answered. Yeah, exactly. And one other thing about Decker, I guess, is that I'm glad that they don't overuse him in this film. Yep, they keep him to the end. Yeah. Which which is nice. Because in the trailers, like, one thing that I found weird is that they always promoted the film with Decker. Like, Decker was, like, in a bunch of scenes in the trailers... And it kind of makes it seem like, oh, he's going to be in, like, most of this film. He's also on the poster, too. So it's like, they they, they make it seem like he's going to have a bigger role than he actually does. But I think that was just, a, like, a way to promote it, because it's Decker and Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford brings in money. So, yeah, I'm glad that in the actual film itself, they kept Decker in a smaller role, but an important role. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense why they would promote the film. Yeah, well, it, it's Harrison Ford. It, yeah. It brings the money. But it's also a good idea to just focus on that scene. and Because it kept so much more of the film a mystery of what it was about. Yeah. Like, I, I don't think many people will be able to figure out what this film is actually about solely based on the trailers. Yeah. Like, the only thing I knew about this one beforehand is that they were seeking out, like, Decker's, like, child. I, I didn't know much beyond that. I didn't even know that much. Yeah, I, I'm not even sure if I got that from the trailers or if I got that from the Wikipedia page. Um, but yeah, they did a really good job of not spoiling anything in the trailers like a lot of action films tend to do. Mm-hmm. I'm glad I was not spoiled on this movie. Because it goes in a direction that I did not expect by the middle. I thought that Kay would end up being the child of Deckard and Rachel. But I'm very glad it did not turn out to be the case. I'm very glad that it is revealed that, yes, he was a replicant. The child is someone else. But that doesn't mean that he isn't human. His actions prove that he is human. At the end of the film, Deckard asks Kay, why did you do this for me? Why did you save my life? Why are you reuniting me with my daughter? What am I to you? And Kay doesn't give him a reply, but the implied uh, reason is just because he has empathy. Because that's... He just wanted that happiness for them because he's a good person. And that's just how he decided to live, like, the last days of his life, really. Yeah. That's like, the change he wanted to make in the world. 
Like, the other replicants wanted him to kill Decker, because they, yeah. they don't care about Decker. Fuck Decker. Um, but but like, he's not a machine that is yeah. just going to obey orders blindly. One, one other he has thing. his own critical thinking capacity. One other thing, one other, like, scene that we kind of related to this in the film was when Wallace's assistant goes up to Decker's boss and starts talking about, oh, you think all these replicants are just good, truthful people. And she's she starts, like, cutting up like Decker's boss, and he's like, I'll just tell Mr. Wallace that you attacked me, and I was doing some self-defense. Yeah. <laughs> that scene pretty yeah. much established that, yeah, they yeah. have free will. They'll do whatever they want. Yeah. Which Love is an interesting antagonist. I am so glad it turned out she didn't was not the child. I'm very glad. I was worried that, oh, she's actually the child of Deckard and Rachel, because... I mean, she did kind of look like Rachel, but... She, she did remind me of Rachel. I'm just like, okay, so is there just, like, a different, like, strand of assisted, like, uh... But it would have been too convoluted if somehow she was being raised by the Wallace Corporation, and that was... The plan was, like, uh, yeah. to keep her hidden in plain sight. That would have been very convoluted. I'm um, glad they didn't go that, that route. That would be a bit actual, of a weird thing And to the do. actual reason is much smarter and more satisfying emotionally. Because another reason, a more personal reason why I didn't want Love to be that child was because she's just such a hateable villain. Because... Yeah. Yeah, she's a replicant. Yeah, she is ostensibly as much a victim, but she's so complicit in the system. She obeys Wallace's orders and is so willing to kill in order to satisfy the boss's orders. She is intrigued by the idea of self-propagating replicants, but at the same time, she does not seem concerned about the fact that they are still being treated as objects and slaves. Yeah, she the, the is fact in a that privileged she, position and she is just making t- advantage of that. The only time where I kind of felt some sympathy for her was in the like the first like scene uh, where Wallace shows up where Wallace is stabbing that new replicant. She was definitely disturbed and crying then. Yeah. But the fact that she does not choose to disobey Wallace and in fact doubles down and gleefully kills in order to achieve her ends. Uh, definitely characterizes yeah. her as more of a villainous character. As bad as Wallace himself, because she is complicit in a system that is oppressing her own kind. Yeah. I, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I was very satisfied that she died. <laughs> yeah. I was sad that Wallace did not die, because Tyrell in the original film died, but... I mean, Tyrell, though... It opens up the world to more possibilities if a villain like him is still alive. Like, Tyrell's death in, like, the original film didn't give me much satisfaction, because, like, they never really built up how terrible of a person Tyrell was. Uh, I think that it was pretty clear, nonetheless. He, He was, but I don't know. He just wasn't there enough. Where in this moment, if, Wall- if Wallace had died, I, th- I would have enjoyed that wholeheartedly. Like, if you think back to the original film, though, said, so, like, Tyrell barely shows up. He's just at the end being a dick to that one replicant. And, yeah, sure, he's a dick, but, it's like, I don't really see much enjoyment in killing him. I guess that's fair. The fact that, to me, he was so patronizing to Roy Batty 
um, the other replicant and saying, you know what? Good for you for trying so hard to not die in three years and, and trying to prove that you're more than what you've been made to be. I'm not denying that he's an asshole, and yeah, he deserved to die. But at the same time, I, I didn't really get much reaction out of it. It's just like, okay, yeah, he deserved to die. Cool. Mm-hmm. We're here, like, if Wallace had died, I'd be like, yeah, fuck yeah. Fuck Wallace. Wallace sucks. Yes. The team, ostensibly, is the same as the original, but I think the execution narratively is much stronger because we are more able to emotionally invest in the characters. The fact that the villains are so much more hateable, I think, is also a good testament to that. Yeah, I'd say, on a character standpoint, this film exceeds the original with flying colors. Yeah, I think the film is stronger narratively and in terms of characters. Visually, in terms of cinematography, the original film leaves much more of an impact on me in terms of its lighting, in terms of how it constructed its scenes, and also in terms of how the scenes themselves sting in my mind. I've only seen Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049 once each, but there are more scenes in the original that stick really well in my mind just because of how it pushes your buttons. Like, the interrogation scene at the beginning of Blade Runner, and then later when Deckard is interrogating Rachel, there is they are so uncomfortable, they are so tense that they really get under his skin. And also, there's also so much more sense of danger in the climax of that original film, like in the battle between K and Love in this film, yeah. like there, there's never really a point in that fight where you think that okay, K is gonna die or anything. No, you, you know who's gonna kill Love. Not necessarily even that. It just did not like really grab you or keep me on the edge of my seat in the same way the fight between Deckard and Roy Batty in the original did. Yeah, I mean I mean that that fight that in the me. original is just rough. Like Yeah. Especially like it just trow it goes it takes place on so many different like sceneries for one thing. And it just like there's never a point where it feels one sided. Right. Where in this it's kinda in the K versus love fight, it kinda just like Shifts over to one side, shifts back to K's side, shifts back to Love's side, and just feels like a back and forth of one dominating the other. The action choreography and then the sense of pain you feel from the characters was just so much stronger than the final fight in the original. That too, like... Here, I didn't really feel the pain of the characters. Even when Love was drowning, I wasn't, like, as uncomfortable... Or I wasn't, like, wriggling in my seat, like, when Deckard was being hunted down by Roy in the original. Yeah, that that's definitely true. So in terms yeah. of, like, the cinematography and, like, the filmmaking, I think the original is stronger. In terms of pure narrative, I think the sequel is stronger. Yeah, I mean, that's not to say that, like, the visuals and the cinematography and... This, I the mean, they're good, but they're just not as striking to me as they were in the original. I think that has to do with the fact that the original had much starker colors. Yeah. Shadows. It, it did. This one was a little more muddy, 
a lot more misty. There, there was a lot, there was of, mix. lot of Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there were monochromatic color schemes and shading used in this, like, in the original, but they didn't, like, stick out as powerfully as, like, when you go into the Tyrell Corporation's office in the original and how that looks. That's just so stunning. Yeah. I didn't really feel the cinematography in this one was, like, that stunning. I mean, it was really good, but it wasn't as artful. Yeah, I guess one thing that the sequel also is able to capture well from the original, in my opinion, is the, like, conveying more through the silent scenes than actual talking and actual dialogue. Because for a lot of this film, it is quiet. There, there's not just people constantly talking and stuff, but it's still conveyed, like, in a really strong manner. And I'd say, like, for a film that's two hours and 45 minutes, not a single scene feels superfluous. Every scene has a purpose, just like in the original film. Every scene means something. Yeah. Yeah. It might be a nearly three-hour film, but never once did I feel bored by it. Yeah. Which is a good thing, because you always have this with, like, these two-and-a-half-plus-hour films where you feel like these can just be cut down. That, that was the thing with Kingsman the Golden Circle. That That's the thing with I think, a lot of the Hobbit films. It's just like... Here, though, it it's done so well. You can see why this had to be two hours and 45 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people had been hyping this film up to me, and just on the internet, as, like, an incredibly engaging and thought-provoking piece of science fiction that surpasses the original. I think they are half right. I don't think that the team is all that complex. I think it's actually pretty blatant of what it's trying to say about yeah. artificial intelligence. The theme is something that... What it that, means to be human and all that. The theme is something that's been in sci-fi entertainment for ages at this point. Yeah. Like... So it didn't really leave me thinking about humanity and existentialism and all that stuff as much as the original film. The original film, I think, did that stronger. Yeah. But I think with this film, it is such a great piece of science fiction because it does have so much thought put into it. You can't really predict what it's trying to say or where it is going with its message mm. if you don't already know. So I think that's what's really great about it. I think it's a great marriage of... Things that make a blockbuster engaging and what makes a genuinely great piece of science fiction entertaining. Yeah, I'd agree. I'd say in terms of just like Hollywood sci-fi, this is easily, I mean, easily, easily. There's more thought put into it, even yeah. if the message isn't necessarily that complex. I mean, there are probably layers you could dig deeper, but I feel like what it what's what it's saying about. You know, artificial intelligence, whether the replicants are human or not. I feel like it makes a very loud statement that, yeah, these are human beings who have lives yeah. worth living I, and deserve to be treated I'd say, the same. I'd say compared with how simplistic Hollywood is with its themes usually, this is done a lot better in terms yeah. of execution. Yeah. I mean, I guess one thing that could have improved its message is showing sympathetic human characters, like... 
real human characters who are yeah. also good to counterbalance the ones that were bad. Because, like, most of the supposedly real human beings in this film are, like, bad yeah, people. Yeah, like, th- this is a problem I have with the original Blade Runner, too, because it never shows you a sign that yeah. there are good human beings. That's fair. Unless you unless we're supposed to unless we unless we believe Deckard. Yeah, unless we consider But Deckard. even then Deckard's not that good a person. Deckard's yeah, Deckard's not that great of a person. And yeah, even with one person though you can't just represent that okay, so a society still has good human beings. Which I I guess is something this film I think should have done. To give it a more stronger message. But, uh, any other thoughts? I don't have many other thoughts on this film. I think it's actually very straightforward thematically, so there isn't too much for me to dig into. And in that respect, it's a little disappointing. As a film in of itself, though, it was incredibly engrossing and engaging. Definitely one of the best films of the year in terms of the overall cohesiveness of it and just, it is an astounding film. Yeah, this is easily my favorite film of this year by Landslide. I, I loved it. Yeah, and I guess like you, there's just not a lot left to talk about him because it's such a character-driven film that it's much about the plot. The plot is so strong and like, the themes are there, the themes are... They're just like in the original, but the original was very much more focused on the themes themselves, while this one's intertwining those themes with the narrative. Yeah, one weakness of the original is that it stops to dwell on the themes and philosophize too much. But this film focuses on the narrative, and it doesn't like stop in its tracks to just muse on philosophy. It just keeps focused on a character-driven story, and then the themes come out through the story itself. Which works a lot better, especially yeah. in It makes day. it a much stronger film. Like, I think if you made a film like the original Blade Runner today, a lot of your average film-goers would get bored. I mean, they got bored back then. The original Blade Runner was a flop. Yeah, true. And unfortunately, Blade Runner 2049, while it's astounding critical success, only a modest, if Actually, an underperforming box office. It made its money back, at the very least. Yeah. I think a big issue that this one faces is the fact that it is so long. That, for one, theaters don't want to show it for too long because it takes up so much time. And it's just like, you're, I don't think people are going to want to go see a two-hour, 45-minute film if they aren't already attached to the original film. Not necessarily. I mean, look at our theater audience. We saw this movie in mid-November. This movie came out in mid-September. And still, that theater was pretty full. Yeah, but... It wasn't a small theater. I'd argue that a part of that is also in our area, Sid. A lot of the theaters have already stopped showing it. So the people who do want to see it are congregating in the same areas. But it still expresses an interest in seeing it. Yeah, I, I definitely agree there, and... There are, of course, people are going to it because of such high critical reception. But I guess what I'm trying to say, though, is that it's not reaching a bigger profit because your average casual filmgoer who would go into a theater without very little context on the quality of the films being shown probably would not want to go see a film that's that long. I don't know. I mean, lots of people went to go see those Hobbit movies. Yeah, but Lord of the Rings is such a more... 
culturally talk about thing compared to Blade Runner. Blade Runner, people talk about Blade Runner, but it's mainly, mainly people who love and have like a passion for cinema. Your average person will not really talk about Blade Runner. I suppose. I mean, it's just a shame that this was not a mega hit. I mean, in a sense, it is a blessing because that means that the studios won't try to whore it out as a franchise or anything. This can stand alone as just a quality film that will be remembered as a classic in the decades to come. We're not going to get, like, 50 more films like we're going to get with Star Wars now. Yeah, so in that (laughs) respect, I think that this is a good thing that it's only as financially successful as it is. Because... God forbid, I don't want such a thought-provoking film series to be hoard out into cheap, commercialized, mass-produced nothingness that is Star Wars. Yeah. That, That wouldn't be good. I mean, like, I wouldn't be opposed to a Blade Runner 3. Because there is still stuff you can do with this. I mean, there's potential for a third movie, but at the same time, that's basically... Where this is going, it kind of feels like, oh, the replicants are going to take over and make it into the Matrix? Is that where this is going? I feel like we've seen that story before. Yeah, like it's... Uh, like, I know some, there, there's a minority of people who watch Blade Runner who want, like, this conclusive ending. We don't need a conclusive ending to Blade Runner. Yeah. Like, there, there's no need. Especially in this one where it's not about the, the Replicant Rebellion is not the main point of the plot. The main point is Kay's journey. Yeah. So, in, in that, in that sense, it wouldn't make sense for another film. Cause it's this one reason. replicant who, desperately wants to be a quote-unquote real boy, and then by the end of the film, he realized he has been a real boy all along. Not that he was ever a human in terms of he was born of humans, naturally, but he is human. Yeah. And everything that that means, just in who he is. Exactly. So, I don't think we necessarily need a third film, but if we get it, sure. Um, maybe we'll get one in, like, 30 years. Maybe. I, I think that, I think you, you mentioned this before, off mic, that this film will probably become, like, the original film as a cult classic. It will be bought and resold for decades, and I think it it's going to be remembered. It's going to be remembered as a masterpiece, because that's what it is. Yes. But I think that's basically all we have to say about Blade Runner 2049. There is just not much more to say other than it is as incredible as people are saying it is. Maybe not as thoughtful as I feel people are making it out to be, but as a film, just one of the best pieces of cinema that has come out in quite some time. Yeah, I'd go see it if it's still in theaters near you. Or I think the home me- home media release will be out soon. So, sure. yeah. Just 
there's gonna be ways to buy it, so support it. It's it's worth your time. Mm-hmm. And also worth your time will probably be the next movie we're talking about. Whatever it is. Ooh. It doesn't even have anything to do with ghosts. I know. Welcome back to Magic Movies, a show where we talk smack about movies. Or not talk smack about movies. What's the last movie we talked smack about? I don't even remember. I don't know, but even if we were to talk smack about this movie, we wouldn't smack it. We would slice it. We would cut it up because we're talking about a good old-fashioned samurai flick this time. A modern take on that genre by someone who knows it very well. Acclaimed action director Takashi Miike. Blade of the Immortal is the film of the day we're talking about, and it happens to be Takashi Miike's 100th film. That's right, that man is incredibly prolific. And <laughs> I have not seen all of his films at all, no. In fact, I think that Blade of the Immortal might be the only film of his I've actually seen. I think I've seen another one of his films, but I forget which one it is. Huh. I don't know. I'm planning to see the JoJo one at some point, at the very least. Yes, Takashi Mika has directed several live-action adaptations of anime video game related properties such as Yatterman, Ace Attorney, As the Gods Will, Terraform Mars, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, Diamonds are Unbreakable, Chapter 1, even though they probably will not make Chapters 2 and 3 because yeah. that performed pretty badly at the box office. And we don't yeah. usually get a lot of Takashi Miike films over here, at least not in theatrical screenings across the country, but we did for Blade of the Immortal because that is its 100th film, and also because it is like a legitimately great film that I think appeals to a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, I, I think for what little critical reception it's gotten, it's all been positive. Yes, thank you, Magnet Releasing, for bringing this film out over here. I've never heard of that licensor. Well, I <laughs> hadn't either, but they are responsible for bringing this out into theaters and for you being able to rent it off iTunes for seven bucks. Thank you. Yes. Get me the JoJo film. Part of what might have <laughs> given this film a good reputation, or at least some hype, is the manga it is based on, which is widely regarded as a classic. It has won several awards. The original manga by Hiroaki Samura, a 20-year spanning, 30-volume running manga series about a samurai called Manji, well, more of a Yojimbo because he's a bodyguard. And he's an immortal because he has these blood worms in his body that heal up all his injuries. And so now he goes around Ido protecting Rin, a girl who is trying to avenge her family by killing the man who is responsible for their deaths. 
Anotsu and his group of samurai, the Itogui. Japanese names. Cool. Okay. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know what comic you wanted said. Awkward silence. This manga is very beloved, so it makes sense that there would be a lot of excitement for this film. And it was adapted quite well, I would say. I've only read the first three volumes. But the movie adapts much of the early parts and then makes up its own ending from what I understand of it. Hmm, okay. I I haven't read a single chapter of the manga, so yeah. I don't really have much to say on that, but I found it interesting that this this basically takes a lot of the plot beats from the entire manga and then kind of, like, melds it together into one narrative. I mean, in the sense that it does take elements from a lot of different arcs to make up its own climax, Hmm. but the first half of the movie adapts, like, the first three volumes pretty faithfully, I would say, with some, you know, changes made here and there to streamline things. So would that be everything up to, like, Manji fighting the other guy who's immortal? That would even be past that. It The third volume is Manji fighting Makie, the prostitute who is a member of the Itogui, who is very loyal to Notsu. Oh, that girl. Okay. Mm-hmm. They take out most of her backstory, which is very interesting in the manga. So when she, in the film, make, uh, decides to spare... Manji's life and says, Oh, I hate fighting and I always hate the effect that my fighting brings to people. I hate killing. I was like, that, like, that comes out of nowhere in the film because it's like, what, what? You were so <laughs> badass and serious up until this point and now you're like, Oh, I can't kill you. You, you cut up you the- stabbed you. You cut up the Manji. And now you're saying that you can't kill him. Yeah. It, maybe, yeah. Maybe you should have felt this way like five minutes ago. It makes more sense in the manga where she is presented as more emotionally vulnerable and she fights Manji before and can't really put up a fight because she her heart isn't in it, and then she has some introspection, and then when she fights Manji the second time, she you know, basically defeats him, but like it, it's still made not very clear in the film. You know, mm. her backstory, her, her philosophy, why she is the way she is. In the manga she has a backstory. And her relationship with Anotsu is also not as fleshed out. Because, I mean, you get this idea that they are lovers, that Anotsu and Maki love each other in the film, but, you know, there's just so much more to their relationship in the manga. Yeah. And you can say that for a lot of things, I'm sure, but, like, the first couple of storylines, they pretty much carry over all the essential elements. I think the biggest change in this film is honestly making it more serious. And that's what really surprised me, is that in terms of tone, this is played much more seriously than I would have expected. And also, it is not that over the top with its violence. I mean, yes, there is a lot of extreme violence, but... It actually feels a lot more grounded than I would expect. Yeah. Even though there are, like, you know, extreme stunts, like, 
Machie's uh, weapons and the scene where the three warriors are like impale Maji and then try to decapitate him by with the tree and stuff by tying the what whatever it is the sickle to the tree and all that. Mm-hmm. So I mean, there are like extreme action set pieces, but like the actual like action does not feel as over the top. Like in the manga, when we see the scene where Manji kills his sister's husband, like he slices the top of his head right off. Oh, shit. like it splits in half. It's kind of interesting. They, it's kind of interesting that they want that direction because usually with these anime manga films, like. Trying to like embrace the like crazy over the top. Yeah, many ways they end up becoming more over the top than the source material. Yeah, but this feels a lot more grounded. I mean, when Shinra is falls down the waterfall and splatters into like a bunch of blood, <laughs> that is one of the few moments where it's like over the top. Yeah, <laughs> that, that, that but like chuckle. in general, it's a lot more grounded. I was a little disappointed in that because. One of the most cool things about the manga is, like, the death murals. Like, at the end of every chapter, when Manji defeats his opponent of the chapter, like, there's a very painterly, like, super detailed depiction of his blade. And it's like, it's this, I, a lot of people describe it as, like, a mandala kind of image. It's just really detailed and kind of, Trippy, for lack of a better word. I mean, mm. it's just and just so visually distinct. It looks like a painting, but they didn't replicate that style in the film. Mm. Like, no one dies in like a very pronounced manner. It's pretty straightforward actions. Pretty straightforward, uh, you know, fighting samurai fighting. Mm. And I was expecting, like, me, uh, from what I have seen and understand of Mikke's filmography, he is known for, like, his over-the-top action as well. So I was surprised he didn't do that take. And he, was, yeah. he decided to take this in a more serious direction. But from what, what little, from what little direction. clips I've seen of his other stuff, yeah, he definitely embraces the whole over-the-topness of the material. So it's interesting with this that he went so much more subdued. I heard he went more grounded in series with JoJo as well. I Jojo, think that worked against some... it. I think that's what worked against it. But I think with Blade of the Immortal, given its source material, it works a lot better. Even yeah. if, to me, I really wanted to see those death murals replicated in the film. And so, yeah, with a samurai film, you can pull that off. You can go a bit more serious, I feel. JoJo, though, that just sounds weird. 100% serious JoJo. Maybe that, maybe the, maybe the film should have bombed. I don't know if it was 100% serious. <laughs> Just from how I had seen yeah. clips of it, it seemed he was taking a more serious approach to it. Focusing on the horror aspect more than the comedy. That's one thing that he did with Blade of the Immortal, is that he removed most of the comedy. Like, a lot of the characters, like, Maji himself is a completely different character in this film. He's more serious. He's more brooding. In the manga, he's a lot more relaxed. He has a more 
abrasive personality. He's not afraid to speak his mind, and he cracks jokes. I wouldn't say he's completely serious in this film, but he, I, I guess, like... I got that sense. I, I got the sense like, that a, a lot... Even Rin was also more, like, serious, a victim. I mean, she played herself more as, like, uh, a victim than in the manga. In the manga, she had, like, more agency, and she was essential to, like... A lot of the fights. I mean, not that essential, but she at least fought. Like, when Manji fought the other immortal, he only was able to, like, get the upper hand because Rin intervened and helped him out and distracted Shizuma enough in order to, uh, him to turn the tide. But here, like, he just does it all on his own and she mm-hmm. just is off to the side. I think that Rin suffers a lot in characterization because she has just so much more agency in the manga and she also has so much more personality because she makes, you know, jokes and stuff. And in the film, she still teases Manji, like, in the brother scene. And that scene is, like, one of the coolest in terms of, like, cinematography because we start, like, with, like, we have a lot of distance from the characters, and they are standing a distance apart. It's just, we just, we focus on this wide shot, this one single shot, for a long period of time. And then, when, like, Manji walks away to, on, to the left of the screen, the camera pans with him. We're still for, at the same distance. We have, don't cut at all. It's just one shot. Mm-hmm. And then, like, he stops dead center of the frame, right when Rin is saying, Oni-sama, you know, he stops. And then she comes into the frame, and there's it closes in between them. And then he leaves again. The panic follows him still, but like again, it's just one take, one shot. And then the Mike really cleverly uses the distance between characters to characterize the relationship and how it changes, how it grows apart, and also to like reflect Manji's emotional distance from Rin and everything. How he's trying to, like, run away from his past. Like, it's such a really well-done scene. And, again, one of the most things I really like about Mikkei's filmmaking in this is how he's able to linger on a scene to characterize emotion, to bring out more emotion. Like, the, the when Rin is just sitting in her father's dojo with his corpse on the floor and a pool of blood and just, like, sit there looking at that shot for, like, what feels like 30 seconds or more. Mm. And we just take that in until she starts wailing and bawling. It's just, man, great filmmaking there. Really knows how to, like, make a get a reaction out of you. Really makes... You focus on the scene and get everything out of that image. You know, really good filmmaking here. I'd say Mikkei's experience really shines in this film. It just is so engaging just how, how everything is presented visually. Like you said, just all, every, all the directing just go ties in really well with the actual narrative and themes. It just looks so great. I don't really, I don't know, like... For me, some of the most significant things about the film is just thinking about how he made changes to it to present it as the narrative he wants. Because he takes off a lot of the humor, and also, in terms of the performances, they are much more, you know, grounded. There's not too much over-the-top acting. And in terms of 
casting, like, one thing that, you know, was really stood out to me is Shizuma. Like, Shizuma is the other immortal. And in the film, mm-hmm. he's, like, a white-haired, much older-looking man, you know, to establish that, yeah, he's been around for a long time. And also, his performance communicates, like, this, that sense of jaded personality. Yeah. Which itself comes off as intimidating. But in the manga, he did not look that much older than Manji. He had black hair. He was a little younger-looking. The way his character design was, he was just more straightforwardly unnerving. He seemed just crazy, just flat out in terms of his looks and psychology. But, like, in the film, like, it all came down to the performance, that deep voice, just the monotone way he said everything. So, I think the performances were all really good. I mean, Rin's voice, uh, Rin's actress, Hana Sugisake, I think she was actually brilliant. Even though Rin, as a character, has, like, less agency, I feel, than her manga counterpart, in the sense that she is not as, uh, driven to get involved. Like, she doesn't, like, actively participate in fighting as in the manga. I still think, like, during the scene where she is telling Makie whether she believes her path of revenge and whether she can justify killing is wrong or not, I think, like, she really elicits a lot of great emotion in her dialogue in that scene. Like, her acting is superb. Like, whenever she is making, like, a really emotional speech or there's, like, a really powerful emotion she's trying to express, her actress really nails it, and that really sells the character for me. Even though I like the characterization of her manga counterpart a lot better. Like, in the manga, that scene where Rin is talking to Makie, it's, you know, all the same things are said, but, like, the way it's presented... It's just a lot less impactful in the manga than it feels in the film to me. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting. I don't know. I, I feel like I have more to say about this if I had read a bit of the manga. Right. I mean, I only yeah. read the first few volumes, but everything in those first yeah. few volumes are in this film, except for, like, one chapter's worth of content that was superfluous. I, I guess one thing I guess I could give my opinion on is that I just felt, yeah, like you said, even, a, even beyond, like, Rin... Rin's actor, I felt just the acne in this in general was really well done. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know, I feel like there's this weird stigma with uh, Japanese live-action films, especially with anime and manga adaptions, that they're kind of low-budget, they kind of just don't get, like, super-talented, like, actors and stuff, but this is, like, oh, no, really... it's extremely well-acted. Yeah, like... like I think Manji. All the three like, main roles are incredible. Takuya Kimura's Manji, brilliant. Hanasukisaki's Rin, the standout, I think. And Sota Fukushi as Anotsu, great performance. Really sells him as a villain. I really like this characterization of Anotsu in the film. In the manga, he definitely seems more childish, more of a bratty character. But in the film, like, he just has such a commanding presence. He feels so dangerous, even though he's so quiet and soft-spoken. Like, mm. really good characterizations for performance in this film. I really like it. Yeah, I really liked just how Anotsu was presented. Like, great villain. Yeah, like, they kind of, initially they do kind of portray more as, like, I guess, more, I guess, super villainy and how, like, he's letting, like, his 
subordinates just like pillage and rape like like uh Rin's dojo. But over over the course of the film you really can I guess not sympathize with him per se, but you can understand where he's coming from with his mentality towards wanting to become kind of this overreaching like master of like swordsmen for like the entire nation. Yeah. I mean, the film does a really good job as painting him as an anti-villain. He's still a bad person because he yeah. has killed in order to make the Itogui what it is. But at the same time, you can empathize with his motivation because it is grounded in some very powerful philosophy mm. and personal reasoning. Yeah. And he's not necessarily like black and white evil. Like, he doesn't go out of his way to kill needlessly, at least to him. He sees no reason to kill Rin, so he doesn't. Like, he's yeah. not gonna go out and kill innocent people. He does not consider her father innocent because of what he represented, because of what his grandfather did to his grandfather. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, he very much has his own court of honor. And he sticks by it. Yeah. I think all the performances are excellent. I am less enthusiastic about characterization of certain characters. Uh, or at least the presentation of certain characters. Like, I think the big one for me is Maquier, because she is such a less interesting character in the film. I mean, she's cooler in the sense that her fight scene is, like, really great. She doesn't have... But, not like, her present, personal so. motivation is not strong. I mean, they communicate, like, that sense of, oh, she is not really that happy to see a Notsu when he comes to her to, at the uh, hostel to tell her to go fight Manji. And then, like, she leaves him a lock of hair as an apology at the end. We see a, a Notsu's re reaction, so... I mean, there's there's subtle characterization there, but she's just not as good a character as in the manga. She, she doesn't have like a lot of presence in this film, in my opinion. Yeah. Like, um, just another one, and this is, I guess, is more minor, but I I think it's also indicative of how I actually think this film is oddly toned down and censored in the set, in compared to the manga in the character of Sabatoi Kuroi. So this was. The first of the Itorui that they kill. The, the guy with like, the heads on the shoulders. Yeah. He has heads on his shoulders, right? But we don't see like the heads fully exposed. We see like him expose part of Rin's mom's head, but we don't see like his wife's head on the other shoulder. Oh god. Like they don't even mention that in the film. They don't even mention his philosophy behind why he puts the heads on his shoulders in the film. Like, he's he's a one-chapter character in the manga. But he's just so interesting in terms of, like, his characterization and philosophy that he really stuck in my memory. And, like, him revealing, like, the fa his heads on his shoulders and it's just so disturbing an image in the manga. But I'm so disappointed that in this film that they don't go all the way. They don't reveal the heads. They don't just have that shock moment. And that really let me down, honestly. And I feel like a lot of the violence is toned down and made less extreme. And it just lessens the shock of things. Like, it's really good action. 
What I want to emphasize is that the action choreography in this film is phenomenal, oh, and the sense of pain that the characters feel in the fights is brutal. It, like, really grips you, gets you on the edge of your seat. Manji's the entire, like, last 30 minutes is just one long fight scene with Manji and Anosu just fighting a hundred army man of people, and it's just... It's insane. Insanely intense and brutal. So, like, whenever someone gets hurt in this film, you really feel it. It's so good in terms of filmmaking. But it just, in terms of the spectacle that was in the manga that made, that made the manga stand out, I think that was a little disappointing that that was not communicated in the film. Carried over. Hmm. Well, that's disappointing. Yeah. And then in terms of storytelling decisions... I actually think they could have taken out Shizuma completely. Like, he was brings he the up... the haired guy? No, the white-haired guy sh- the lost hand? Sh- yeah, Shizuma is the white-haired guy who is also immortal. Mm-hmm. And, like, I think they could have taken them out because in the overall grand context of the movie, he didn't really add much because they don't use the poison that he used in the rest of the movie to uh, nullify Manji's healing. I mean, maybe it's because of that poison why Manji's healing effects gradually worsen, but at the s- I feel like... Tem- I guess thematically there's still a reason because of that whole scene where he tempts Rin into becoming immortal and also because he's supposed to serve as a tragic counterpart to what Manji could become. If he went down the wrong path. So, okay. Maybe he serves a point, but just... I think it's one weakness of adapting some episodic storylines into a film. Is that it doesn't... He feels like... it feel He feels less necessary to the overall plot than some other things. That's kind of like the like most, like... I guess, like... The first, like, I think more... I think more... Worthless to the plot is Shira... And his gang of people. Because for one thing, Shira's subordinates do not have any role in the movie. They, they do not. Like, he, the blonde haired woman that is in his group does not do anything. Do at they all. actually fight at all? Really? No. The glasses guy murders all of the Ichirui at the hideout. Yeah. But she doesn't. She's not even in that scene, which is so weird. And I don't know what happens to her after. She has her conversation with Manji about asking where Shira went to. Uh, Shira, I'm sure, was a very significant character in the manga. I haven't gotten to him. But it feels to me that, like, his role could have just been taken out and the movie wouldn't have lost... I mean, he's there to facilitate the whole callback to how Manji lost his sister and has Manji now face a situation where... He might lose Rin in a similar way and find a way out of that. So he's here to facilitate that kind of callback and make that conclusion satisfying. But I don't know. I feel like he actually kind of distracts from the climax and just how he just randomly shows up in the middle of this battle scene. Just grabs Rin. Grab Rin and take him out of the action. Like, it's just... It's it, it definitely felt out of place. But he literally just walks into the crowd of soldiers. I mean, he rides in on a horse. Yeah, but after he gets on the horse, he just walks into the crowd of soldiers and he just, like, 
grabs Rin. Grabs Rin walks out. Just like, yeah. what the heck are you doing? Yeah. I was expecting something bigger when he came up with his plan of, oh, I know how to get you back, Monji. <laughs> I'm a bad guy. I'm gonna grab Rin, Herpa-derp. You can't beat me now, Herpa-derp. Yeah. But overall, I think those are minor complaints in terms of, like, things that maybe could have been taken out or rewritten in a way that felt, like, more cohesive. I don't know. Overall, I think the film was really tightly made. I mean, I enjoyed everything that was in the film, and it definitely made me really excited to read more of the manga. Like, I am really into the manga after having read the first few volumes, and after seeing the film, I really want to read more of the manga, because I know that the film can only scratch the surface of the story that was in the manga in order to tell its story in a two-and-a-half-hour length. Yeah, I mean, Blade of the Mortal was already on my black blog, but it just got higher on my priorities after this. It was an awesome film. I'm glad I got to see it in theaters, and... I definitely really want to check out more of Takashi Miike's filmography because he's a really interesting director. And yeah, I would definitely recommend this film to any fan of the manga and any fan of Takashi Miike because it's excellent. Yeah, so if you haven't seen it yet, go buy it digitally or watch it however you can. And that concludes our discussions of Blade of the Immortal, and Blade Runner 2049. Thank you for listening to this episode of Manga Mavericks at Movies. Where the, can the good people find you, VLORDGTZ? Um, the people can find me on Twitter at VLORDGTZ. That is V-L-O-R-D-G-T-Z. Um, yeah, I just usually talk about whatever I'm reading on there, which is tends to be a bunch of stuff lately for some reason. Um, but I'm also doing a Lupin the Third manga read-through on there, which I have to get through the next few volumes eventually. It'll happen. It just takes a while. But, uh, yeah, aside from that, if you want to talk about Technicon and JoJo or anything else I like, just hit me up on there. I usually respond. We forgot to talk about our Kira experience, and I think that's important. We played the immortal. Oh, okay. Because what was interesting is that we saw this at Lagoon Cinema, and so we haven't been in Lagoon Cinema in a while because they just stopped showing like really most anime related films. But Some they were showing Blade of the Immortal, so we went there, and it was very interesting because apparently there was a screening of the room that night, so there was a huge crowd of people there for the room, including people cosplaying as Tommy Wiseau <laughs> and quoting lines to each other. So I did not really hit her. I did not hit her. Oh, hi, Mark. Yeah, and in the theater itself. Uh, our theater, it was not that many people. I think there were only uh, eight people total, including us. Yeah. So, yeah. And you could hear, initially you could hear the screaming from the other theater where they were playing the room, because they were giving out pizza, and they were having, like, a weird trivia game before, like, the actual film itself. Man, it was a real party. I kind of wish that we had also attended <laughs> that. But I we saw unequivocally the better film, so. Yeah. And I was glad we weren't in too crowded theater, or at least too noisy a theater. Yeah, I mean, that theater shows the room, like, once a month, so it's not really a big deal missing a room screening. Yeah, it's just like a theater in New York that I used to go to a lot, 
which showed Rocky Horror Picture Show literally every weekend. Yeah, this one this one also shows Rocky Horror Picture Show a bunch too. Mm. Like yeah. I think that's just a darling of indie theaters. Yeah, I think so. Anyway, I just want to briefly mention that theater experience because it was very interesting. But as for me, you can find me, Lum Ramayasha, on Twitter, at Lum Ramayasha, on my anime list as Lum Ramayasha, on Animation Revelation as Lum Ramayasha, everywhere you can find me, you'll find me as Lum Ramayasha. And as for the show, you can follow Manga Mavericks on Twitter, at Manga underscore Mavericks, on Tumblr, at MangaMavericks.tumblr.com, on iTunes, subscribe to us, rate and review us, Manga Mavericks, and look for our YouTube channel name, Manga Mavericks, where you can listen to all of our content, and even more stuff that's YouTube exclusive, like our Judy Dyson and Kino's Journey reviews, and remember guys, like our content on there, but and subscribe to us too. We just need more of your love and support, so any of that would be greatly appreciated. You can, of course, catch the show first on allcomic.com. All podcast episodes are uploaded there first. Follow that on Twitter, at all underscore comic. And if you like the show and you want to send us some suggestions of future movies to review or just send us some questions, comments, and criticism, send those over to our email at mangamavericks at gmail.com. We love reading your guys' feedback, and it definitely helps us improve the show. But that just about does it for this episode of Manga Mavericks at Movies. We'll see you in the next one. I think you're going to see Sayonara. I was going to say it after you said your goodbye, but... Well, you usually say the sayonara, and then I say the later. Sayonara. Later.